This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Richard Dijkstra. Welcome, you're listening to the Bell Media Podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. Today I'm speaking to a multi-award winning photographer who's also taken his skills out of the studio and into the African bush, all in the aid of conservation. George Logan is a highly regarded commercial photographer, winner of innumerable awards. Undoubtedly, listeners will have seen some of his work. His images have featured in campaigns for clients such as HSBC, Adidas, Sky, Bank of Scotland and IKEA. But in parallel, He's also worked to help wildlife conservation charity Born Free raise awareness and raise funds. Currently, he's at the heart of an innovative crowdfunding appeal to raise funds to publish a stunning coffee table book about lions in the wild. It's all to help Born Free's work in Meru National Park in Kenya. Welcome, George. Hi, Richard. So, George, uh, you were born and brought up in Scotland. were you always interested in nature and the environment? It came on at quite an early age, um, possibly around the age of seven or eight. I moved school quite a lot, and uh, I did have a period of living out in rural Scotland, in East Lothian. And uh, I was given the book Born Free, and then I went to see the film Born Free. And that was kind of the start of something that never really left me. So, uh, um, yeah, from very early beginnings. So that's interesting. So did you become a supporter of Born Free as an organisation from the outset, or is that something that only developed over time? I always had the love of animals, and my mother was always aware of that, and uh, it became a bit of a passion of mine. But I didn't ever contact them till 20-odd years later when I'd sort of got my photography career going and, and sort of moved to London. Uh, and I, I sort of got in touch with Virginia McKenna and uh, and became, a, you know, an avid supporter. All right, okay, well, we'll perhaps talk about that a wee bit uh, later then. Uh, in terms of photography, was that something that when you were at school you had uh, an aptitude for? How did you get involved in moving into photography? Well, that was quite a funny one. I don't, I don't know about how, you know, your school experience, but I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I only knew that I wanted to do something that I enjoyed doing or loved. Uh, And I started taking photographs at age about 14 and telling my careers officer that I wanted to be a photographer was a bit akin to saying you wanted to be a a footballer or a pop star. It just wasn't really um, much of an option. Um, but I, I loved it and I, you know, I, I picked it up from there and I've not done anything ever since. Right. And so you, you went somewhere to study photography or did you end up as sort of apprentice into some other photographer? I did A-level photography and then I did a one year sort of course in it. Um, and then I went to Blackpool College, which at the time, funnily enough, was the, the top photography college for three years and uh, um, from that point I then sort of became an assistant for a year and started shooting pretty soon after that. Right so you're now sort of well known for all sorts of commercial projects and things. 
when you're working on a project, I mean, how does that work? Are you given a very tight brief or are you asked to come up with ideas? You know, can you explain a wee bit about how the process works? Yeah, my, my sort of photography style sort of developed into quite a conceptual style where I was invited in to contribute to the, the creative process. So my, my whole sort of um, style has evolved from coming up with ideas and trying to shoot something in a, a unique and hopefully original way. And at that point, animals didn't feature at all. I was shooting mainly for large companies, uh, the likes of Sky or O2 or Vodafone or whatever. Um, and the the animals came a lot later. And to be honest, it was because I was looking at my work and thinking, I kind of want it to mean more than an advert, <laughs> you know. So, uh, um, uh, you know, I started to try and find a sort of deeper meaning for it. Yeah, okay, I can, I can understand that. I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because uh, over the years, I've met quite a few wildlife photographers uh, and often been lucky enough to actually go on trips with them and see them in action. And I, I do sense from looking at your work that you are very different in how you approach things from the average wildlife photographer. I think Virginia McKenna, uh, who you were talking about before, who obviously set up Born Free, she summed it up quite nicely when she said, you know, that there are, I'm quoting here now really, there are many wonderful wildlife photographers, but George's images are amongst the most intriguing, thought-provoking and original. And I thought it was a really nice quote, but I also thought, I just wondered, is that because you come from this kind of commercial background where you know, your focus is about conveying a message rather than just recording, you know, what happened to happen in nature? I think it's exactly that. Um, I think I've, I've kind of always had this slight storytelling aspect to my photography, uh, and we're always trying to approach things in a, an unusual way um, to try and deliver the message. And, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I love Virginia to bits, and that was very kind of her to say that. But I think... Um, yeah, I've come come at this from a completely different angle. Um, you know, there, there does seem to be a conventional route into wildlife photography, and I didn't take it. I mean, I, I also wonder if it's also because of that commercial background that, I mean, I'm not sure whether I'm saying the right thing here when I say this to you, but, you know, there's perhaps a, a willingness to work more with the images, you know, to kind of... Manipulate is perhaps not the right word, but you know to kind of edit towards a greater truth or something like that. You know that whereas the uh, perhaps a, a naturalist would turn around and say, "No, no, I can't possibly change that image." Whereas yeah. I get the impression that you're quite happy to play with the light and do all sorts of things, which actually highlight something of a, a different message. Really, yeah, I totally get um, where you're coming from on that, and that's true. Um, the book we're working on has two sections. It does have this sort of natural wildlife section where I, I agree you shouldn't try and retell a story that isn't there. Um, but then when we're, we're approaching the, the threats that lions face, we have an approach that stops us. You don't have to show the graphic, horrible images. You find a different way for people to think about what they're seeing and what message you want to convey. Uh, and... A way of explaining that is even 
someone like myself who's really into wildlife con conservation, it's very important to me. I don't want to start my day by seeing pictures of a, a poached or a slaughtered elephant or rhino. So we come up with ways of getting the message across without those sort of the, the graphic horror. Um, and that seems to have been, you know, something that we've worked on from quite early on that's become a, a style. Yeah. I mean, I can also see that when you're trying to get public attention, there is that thing as well that, you know, perhaps people have seen too many of these kind of similar, you know, as you say, you know, awful images, really, of some of the things that happen. And actually people sometimes just filter them out, switch off whereas you're looking to get their attention and sort of bring them back into the subject in a way that they can relate with. I think that's exactly it. So with uh, with the book, so the, the book's called Line Pride Before the Fall. Uh, it's very much focused on raising funds for Born Free's work, and in particular, I think, in the Meru National Park in Kenya. The, as I understand it, that's a park that's particularly important for Born Free, uh, and that there's quite a story about what happened there. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yes, Meru National Park is northeast Kenya. Um, it is the the area where the film Born Free was shot in the 1960s, and that park just used to be full of wildlife and um, everything you can imagine um, of the African wildlife lived there. In the 1980s, it got decimated. It got absolutely overrun with poaching and lost, I think it's 90% of the wildlife and nearly all of the lions disappeared. And Born Free and several other conservation charities have got together and tried to revive the park. Um, and it's bouncing back, it's on its way back. The lion population is down to roughly about 60 to 70 lions, which there would have been thousands there. So it's become an, a massively important area conservationally, and that's uh, that's where we're focusing this effort on. And so, is that somewhere that you visited uh, a number of times uh, that over the period? Have you seen things change? Yeah, yeah, we have. I, I've been there um, four or five times, and I each time we go, we're starting to see improvements. The Born Free team on the ground there is dedicated. And with the funds that we hope to raise from the book, we want to increase the sort of anti-poaching units, the um, the monitoring and tracking of the animals. Uh, we're going to introduce solar panels so that the, the rangers can communicate easier. Um, so many things will happen. And theoretically, and hopefully, we will help the, the lion population recover. Right. Now, presumably also, the, the pressure on what's been happening with COVID uh, is actually making things even more difficult in these areas because you know that presumably a lot of the uh, anti-poaching patrols and things like that are actually being affected by restrictions themselves in what's capable of being done. Yeah, that's very true, and it's a good point. And I've been hearing uh, reports that poaching is on the rise again. And as you say, the uh, Kenya and most. African countries really rely on the tourist money, um, the tourist income to help pay for the ranger posts and the conservation efforts. Um, and I'm, we're hoping to hear on the 6th of July 
if Kenya is opening its borders again because uh, I'm itching to go back. <laughs> I've, I've got one more uh, one more shoot planned before our book is published, so I'm very keen to get back there. Um, funnily enough, we were there until March the 24th. The UK was in lockdown, but Kenya was just about to go. And uh, we we were there until two days before all the international flights stopped. So it was a very unusual thing to observe. The parks were empty. There were no tourists. And one hilarious thing happened where we were sat having dinner and out of the kitchen in our camp ran a hyena, <laughs> you know, straight out from right. the kitchen, straight past our table, you know, like bold as brass. And uh, the message was that, as soon as the people aren't there, the animals move in. That was interesting about what you were saying about uh, tourism, that the relationship between conservation and tourism is, is perhaps quite complicated. Have you got any particular views on you know, how it works in the ground from the uh, experiences that you've seen? Yeah, you're right. It is very complicated. And it's a, it's a difficult issue because, you know, no one likes to say that, 30 vehicles around a cheetah or um, when the wildebeest migration happens, for example, there can be as many as 150 vehicles on that bank of the Mara River waiting for the the crocodile to go for the wildebeest. So it's uh, But the, the flip side of that is it does need that economy to, to help protect the animals. The money from the tourists will pay for the rangers, uh, the protection, the vet, vet units. And if that isn't the case, then when there's no value on the animal, they won't be able to be protected. So it does, um, it, you know, it's it's better that they're photographed shooting with a, a camera than a gun. Yes, I mean, I, I've also seen the fact that there's this issue again of, you know, as far as the local villagers around these parks are concerned, again, the issue is, is, uh, is that park, helping them as well and that obviously that if you can organize tourism in a in a well-balanced way then you can actually provide uh, income and a benefit for uh, for the local villagers which again allows that relationship between the wildlife and the human population to be more in balance but it seems to be all about control and a willingness to actually recognize that it's something that is a limited resource. Well, it's true. Um, And you kind of hope that it does filter through to the local population. Um, And that population is expanding. I think sub-Saharan Africa is going to double in the next 50 years. Um, And every time I go, I come back having seen fewer animals and more human settlement um it the wild places are shrinking and i don't know what we can do but we can do something all we can do is sort of you know try with whatever resources we have to try and ease the situation uh yeah i'm uh, reasonably familiar with what's been happening in india and i think that over the the years uh i think that the the way that India has approached things in the tiger conservation has seen a kind of 180 degree change from tourism really just being seen as a problem to the fact that actually well-managed tourism can actually be beneficial. But there are still these issues to do with 
competition for land and, and resources. Yeah, and there's been compulsory um, purchasing of people's land and sort of moving them on, I think, which has been quite controversial there also. But I'm, I'm very aware of the, the, the issues with tigers. And I mean, that they're, I think, down at 3,200 left in the wild or thereabouts. Um, it's a, a scary number. Have you ever uh, photographed tigers or...? I haven't, Richard, no. <laughs> and, and I have to say, Born Free are very keen for me to do so, and we're already talking about a follow-up project, which will mean going to, to India to photograph them. But uh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sort of uh, engrossed in what's happening in Africa with the lions and you know, other big cats. No, I can, I can understand. You've only got so much bandwidth to do these things. As you know, that you know, I write children's books about tigers, fascinated about them and things. But it, it, it seems to me, again, that somehow whenever you see these animals in the wild, it's just such a different experience. And it's very difficult to convey the feeling that when you see this powerful beast who just kind of ambles past you, <laughs> Uh, there's something really special about it, I have to say. I know. When, when I was young, I, I noticed that um, because I loved animals, I started going to the zoo. And I couldn't work out why I left the zoo feeling sad. And now I understand because you're just not seeing an animal behaving properly. You know, you're seeing, for example, a tiger, I think, has got something at 300 square miles territory in the wild. Uh and you just see them pacing and yes. lolling their heads. And and I it soon became clear to me that I wasn't seeing the real animal. You're basically seeing a captive prisoner uh, as such. So, uh, um, yeah, and I agree. Once you see them out doing what they do, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that you learn quite quickly with tigers, I think, is that actually, yes, they do have big areas and tourists are very restricted to less than 20% of a tiger park. And if the tigers don't want to come and see you, they don't come. Uh, you know, that, uh, so if you are doing your shoot, you better uh, book a reasonable amount of time. Because <laughs> I've certainly been in five or six uh, tiger parks where I've not seen anything. Uh, anyway, so uh, back to you know when you're actually shooting yourself and things, that presumably one of the reasons why you can get such wonderful shots is that you are you've just become so familiar with lines and how they're likely to react that you're able to anticipate what's going to happen next. Is that that be right? It, it, that's exactly it. And uh, without deliberately trying, I have become a bit of an expert on lion behaviour, and I kind of you know I can work out when they're likely to hunt and. The biggest problem is that they sleep for 18 to 20 hours a day. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I, I can't predict when they're going to wake up. And it, some days you can just be sat there thinking, oh. But then it's what they do in those three or four hours when they're awake that just make them so fascinating and spectacular to watch. So uh, I've got a lot of patience or I've developed a lot of patience. And, uh, and the, the other ridiculous thing is there are so few that we've started to know a lot of them by name. I mean, the lion population has shrunk so much. You know, the big maned males, there are like two and a half thousand left in the wild. They're just on the way out. Yeah, you're in first, first name terms with some of them. <laughs> yes. But a bit like you say with the tigers, in uh, certain areas of Africa, 
the lions are very easy in the presence of vehicles. But for example, in Meru, where they've been persecuted or poached or um, you know human wildlife conflict, they they're very very twitchy, and if they see a vehicle, they will head for the bush. And we're quite often tracking them, and the guys that we're with will go, "It's in that bush," and we're going, "Where? Can't see a thing," you know. And uh, they're you know if it, if they don't want to be spotted, they can disappear. So in terms of that, with, with tracking like that, with that uh, a lion that probably isn't that keen on being followed, have you ever been in any frightening situations when you've been trying to take shots? Not really. Um, lions do a thing called mock charging, where they're basically, they just don't want you around. So you get a, a bit of a full-on roar and a charge, but they pull up short and there is a, it's uh, it's happened about four times to me, and uh, I've managed to keep taking pictures as it's happening <laughs> because I'm trusting that they will back, back <laughs> down, you know. So uh, uh, yeah, I was just going to say that you know, uh, you have to put a bit of trust on the fact that someone gave you the right advice in that situation. There, yeah, it's funny, and there's always that massive under, you know. Oh, I think he wanted to get in the car, says my guide, you know, and you kind of take a great big deep breath and think right that'll do for today (laughs) yeah so are there any other uh narrow escapes that you've had with any animals um i was once severely charged by a lion which we disturbed while he was trying to mate and that's one thing that you shouldn't do and he probably got to within two or three meters of me before i was in an open top land rover so i it wasn't it wasn't massively scary, but uh, I, a, a girlfriend of mine did have an issue where rather than using the bathroom in the bush, she used this concrete bunker at the side of a national reserve. And uh, as she was sat in there, down from the ceiling through a window came a black mamba and uh, its head. Oh, wait. <laughs> So, yeah, and uh, the head came right down in front of her face. And I think more by luck than judgment, she slammed the the door into the snake, came running out. And, uh, yeah, sympathetically, I asked uh, what had happened. And then I went, ran in and took pictures of it. And it was only afterwards we realized that it was like one of the most lethal snakes in Africa. So um had lots of uh, scary mishaps but always to other people i seem to uh just sort of wander through well uh, i'm glad you have <laughs> yeah uh well so turning now to the book itself then that uh so you're you say that you're still in the middle of shooting for for the book which i suppose means that that's uh you know the kind of interesting issues to do with uh time scales and all that kind of stuff if you're trying to but can you tell us a bit more about how this uh, Kickstarter appeal uh, is working? I mean, I think just to explain to people that, as I understand it, it's uh, a beautiful coffee table book. I mean, I've seen some of the shots that you're suggesting in it, and they are just stunning. Uh, I think it's supposed to be about 170-odd pages. Yeah. So how's it going? 
It's going well. And funnily enough, when you say I'm on a tight time schedule, I'm the only one that doesn't think it's finished. <laughs> I'm like, I want to squeeze one more trip in because in my head, I'm thinking, well, I've never had this shot and I need to see it and I need to get it. And um, because a lot of the, the process is just being there when something is happening and I know I'll get the shot. So I need to I need to try and make that happen. And uh, But the, the actual Kickstarter is going spectacularly well. Um, I think we're on 81% of our target after 16 days. And, you know, it's running for 60 days. Um, we were actually slightly nervous about putting it out in this time of COVID and, you know, whatever else is going on because we thought, you know, people's finances might be squeezed and I, I could completely understand why they might not want to uh, contribute at this time. But uh, but it's been amazing. We've just had incredible, I think there's 420 books have been ordered already in the first two weeks. So uh, um, yeah, we're, we're really, really pleasantly surprised. So, so the way that it's working is that the, the original appeal is to raise the money to be able to produce the book and do an initial print run and then the the books are for sale so it is it that the kickstarter appeal will kind of go into hopefully sort of overfunding and then that's all going to born freeze funds uh and then what also happens with the books and when they become available um the funds will all be dedicated towards the um the sort of issues that we laid out in the Kickstarter, they're all going to Meru um, and to boost what the team are doing there. Um, and the more we make, the more we can do. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to sell the book. We want the book to have a lifespan um, and to, to carry on the work that we're starting now. So it all, all goes in the right direction, yes. Uh, I think one of the things I suppose we should be saying is that, you know, that, there are lots of other organizations, you know, some very well known, uh, you know, large NGOs that are working in the same space as Born Free. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too provocative on this, but you know, is there really a space for an organization like Born Free? Well, p- people think that there are an army of conservationists. But my experience, there, there really aren't. And one example of that was one evening in 2015, I was in a vehicle, the only vehicle, watching the Marsh Pride of Lions. And uh, they're the, the, the go-to lion pride for all BBC documentaries and all of uh, the, the David Attenborough films. So the, the most famous lion pride in the world. And we watched them. And in the distance, we could see herders illegally bringing cattle into the the game reserve and we knew that that would be a problem because if we could see them we knew the lions could see them so the very next morning we went out and sure enough the lions were eating a cow um and we knew there'd be repercussions and there was and the whole pride was poisoned uh nine lions were poisoned uh two died including the 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 pride lioness And I guess the point I want to make with this is that, you know, that was the go-to lion pride in the world, and there was no one looking after them. You know, so they were right in the front line of human conflict. Um, And if it can happen to them, it's happening all over Africa, and the numbers are shrinking, um, and we're going to lose them if we're not careful. 
Yes, uh, that issue about managing conflict is actually really interesting. Uh, say because I think that a lot of people just see that the only threat really from human population is really to do with uh, poaching, uh, but actually a lot of it is really uh, local villagers, farmers protecting their own livestock, and if there are ways of managing that in a way where the the locals are seen to be able to to benefit in some way or other or be recompensed, then probably some of these issues uh, can be resolved and avoided. It, uh, is that the sort of thing that Born Free gets involved with? Yeah, and I, I think you're completely correct. And it's very easy for us to say, you know, you must look after your predators, but we're not the ones having to live next to them. And I do feel it's slightly sometimes hypocritical because we as Europeans, we used to have wolves and bears and all sorts and we we've kind of got rid of them so uh um it's uh, it's a very tricky dilemma and as you say most people think that it's hunting or you know poaching that's going to to do for the 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 lion population or the big cats or but it really is much more complex than that it's human wildlife conflict habitat loss um and you know the, the the threats are from all sides. Uh, turning to some of the images on the uh, the book itself, uh, there's one that you've uh, shared in the Kickstarter appeal, which shows uh, a, a lion, but with wings. Uh, yes, which yeah. is a very it's a beautiful image. I mean, it's a very arresting image. But I wonder if you could explain a bit about. Well, why you did that? Uh, yes, I worked together with a, an art director called Lawrence Clift on this one, and the the thought behind it, the concept was how long until they're just a myth? Um, you know, this everyone knows what a lion is, but how long until we're only telling stories about them? And the trajectory of you know, in my lifetime, lions have dropped from a hundred thousand to twenty thousand you know, just in the 50-odd years. And last year, myself and my daughter sat with Sudan, who's the last male northern white rhino on Earth. And, you know, it's such a privilege to sit there with this creature like a dinosaur. And he died two, two or three months later, and that was the last of his kind, gone forever, extinct. And I remember at the time, it made the news for a day or a day and a half, and then the world moved on to its next crisis or next dilemma. or And uh, it just made me think, I just don't want that to be happening to lions. Um, and people are just unaware. It's They're slipping under the radar. We're just down to a shockingly few amount of lions left. Well, I have to say that it's a really thought-provoking uh, image, and it certainly stays with me, that one. Right, and in, ter- in terms of Born Free's more general involvement in Africa, are, are they just focused on Meru, or are there other areas that they're doing work as well? No, they're, they're all over the place. They, they, um, they're based in, in the UK, but they've got um, sanctuaries in Ethiopia, South Africa, Malawi and Kenya, and uh, there's you mentioned tigers. 
and I know they have a, also have a tiger sanctuary in India. And funnily enough, we went to Leon uh, last year and we rescued, there was four young lions. One was found in the back of a Lamborghini being driven around Paris, believe it or not. And there was a tiger there also. And those animals then go to the, the born free sanctuaries and they get lifetime care. And uh, um, I think it's spectacular what they do. And I think the reason I got involved with them, not just because of my you know, early years of watching the film and reading the book. I think they're the most, the hardest hitting, best wildlife charity. And I, I think the work they do is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think also the thing about it, I, I, I don't know how many people actually now know the, the story of how the charity came about, because after all, Virginia McKenna was really just acting a part in a way, wasn't she, when she originally got involved? She was, yeah. She was so... Um taken with the plight of the animals after the making of the film that some of the lions were going off to zoos um, and her and her husband Bill started a charity called Zoo Check and there was another film called uh, An Elephant Called Slowly and the elephant ended up in London Zoo and there's this um, image of Virginia reaching out to the elephant who remembers her and uh, that was the, that was the start of the Born Free Foundation. That sort of um, animals in captivity and how to monitor what happens to them, and then that expanded. And Virginia has kind of more or less uh, dedicated her her life. I mean, and uh, uh, yeah, and we hope to carry on the work. Yeah, I mean, it's really an inspiring story, and it's the the fact that you have this. Uh, link back to the the original uh, book too, I think is interesting. I was just going to say, um, I contacted Virginia 12 years ago when I decided that I wanted my work to do something positive for, for wildlife. And she replied the very next day. Uh, and, you know, and we met and became friends and we've sort of worked together ever since really. And, uh, you know, I, I love the work that we do together. Well, yeah, it's great. I suppose looking at your commercial career as well, that you are someone who, in kind of two uh, stages really of your career, have just followed their dream. I suppose, really. Uh, is there a piece of advice that you might give people who are kind of starting out in careers uh, in photography? Well, in both photography and just the other things that you've done in your life. Yeah, uh, wildlife photography um, has changed so much with the, the sort of digital revolution and and I, I see the most amazing pictures every day from Africa because people are out there and they've got all the kit that used to just be restricted to professionals and uh, you know the like the Maasai Mara is just full of people with bazooka lenses charging around taking pictures but, um, anyone like for example in the UK I'd say look closer to home um, just get out and photograph what's around you. And there was one picture in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year this year of two mice fighting on an underground platform, which I just thought was amazing. And it just almost justified, you know, you don't have to go to Africa to get an incredible wildlife picture. So when you say underground, you're actually, uh, you're actually meaning the London underground. The London underground, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, can't, I think it won the People's Vote section. Yeah, it's quite a surreal image, but um, but amazing. And uh, just like I say, I think that was part of its charm, that it didn't involve, 
you know, traveling halfway across the world with the most expensive kit. It was just a really strong image. And I'm, I'm saying great stuff of people are shooting with sort of foxes and badgers and the birds in Scotland. And yeah, don't, don't go to the zoo and take pictures. Just get out into the wilds. Well, I think that's uh, a great place to close. Uh, so thank you, George, for being with me today. It's a real pleasure to hear your stories. Thank you for having me on. And just a reminder for the crowdfunder appeal, it's on Kickstarter. Just look up Lion Pride Before the Fall. Uh, it's also, there are links from the Born Free website and from George's own website. Uh, it's georgelogan.co.uk and Born Free is bornfree.org.uk. That's correct. And as for my own Tiger books, well, of course, you can find them on uh, bookstores and Amazon and Scotland by Mail. So thank you for listening to Books and Stories podcast. The studio production is by Perrin Sledge. I'm Richard Dijkstra. Hope you join us the next time. Bye for now.